Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Nyange. Welcome to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. This is part two of our conversation on Alexander G. Clark, a barber who became a civil rights pioneer in the state of Iowa in the 19th century. Once again, my guest is Dan Clark. In 1879, his son, Alexander Clark Jr., graduated from the University of Iowa with a law degree, and he became the first black student to earn a law degree from Iowa. In 1884, his father, Alexander Clark Sr., graduated from the, from, from the same university with a law degree, and he became the second black man in Iowa to do so. And he was 57 years old. Was he competitive? When he saw his son did it, and he was like, ah. Was that competitive? I, I, think, I think there was something of that. Okay. Hey, hey, that's something else I could do. I don't know that it was competitive. I think I might have been, there's another opportunity. I know what I could do with a law degree. Mm. Uh, I, I have sometimes wondered, actually, if he's looking at his son saying, we went to all the trouble to put you through law school. What are you doing with it? Yeah. I, I don't know. He probably looked, oh, he's the first one. I guess what? I'm going to be the second. And the two of them do go to Chicago together and to run that newspaper. And Alexander Jr., it seems to me, may have done a lot of, done more of the hands-on work. Okay. Than senior. Now, I've read that he practiced law in Illinois, but I haven't found evidence of any kind of case. I, I don't know. Okay. Did he practice law in Iowa at all? Well, he was admitted to the bar. In Iowa. And they had a, they had a grand ceremony. In fact, it was presided over by a judge who'd been a Democrat who had uh, probably opposed him on some things in the past. Uh, but it was, uh, I mean, you've, you've seen this kind of affair where everybody makes toasts and mm-hmm. has, has a grand time. One of the customs of the time, evidently, maybe it is now, I don't know what it's like to uh, be admitted to the bar, but he was admitted to the bar. It was announced in, in open court. And then, and what I've read is, according to custom, he hosted a dinner. Evidently, they had a big party and Alexander paid. <laughs> oh, really? Now, beside uh, Jim Brown... How much was Alexander Clark involved in Underground Railroad? Did he happen to know John Brown? He could have known John Brown. Well, as you know, you've, you've looked into Iowa Underground Railroad. John Brown came through these parts. He came through this county. Uh, he came through Cedar County just north of here. Mm-hmm. He stopped, apparently was a regular visitor in West Branch, Springdale area. One of the most famous John Brown stories is about the group he put on a freight car in West Liberty, which is in Muscatine County. Mm-hmm. Did Alexander Clark and John Brown know one another? We don't know. We know that Frederick Douglass and John Brown knew one another. We knew that Alexander Clark and Frederick Douglass collaborated sometimes. And whether or not they did, what would their conversation have been? <laughs> also about Cincinnati, uh, Uncle George was a participant in what were called colored conventions where people would get together and discuss the issues of the day and have speakers and adopt resolutions and so on, and often having to do with equal rights, anti-slavery, education. We're not absolutely sure, but it was reported in various biographies that Alexander Clark actually, with his uncle, 
attended an 1853 colored convention in Rochester, New York, hosted by Frederick Douglass. Mm. Whether or not he actually attended, he clearly knew Frederick Douglass from that time. Frederick Douglass was the publisher of the North Star newspaper, and Alexander Clark was the Iowa agent for that newspaper back to about 1850. And we, we know for sure that Alexander Clark and Frederick Douglass, they were friends. They were friends. They, they were together on various occasions. That's documented. They'd be on the same uh, speaker's rostrum. There, there were published exchanges of letters between them. When we were at the cemetery today, you talk a little bit about the Quakers. How much was the Quaker presence in those times when Alexander Clark were in uh, Muscatine? And how, what, what was the relationship? There's a Quaker, with Quaker settlement in Cedar County, okay. in the West Branch, Springdale area. And there was, there was a friends meeting in Muscatine mm. at that time. I haven't found particular connection between Alexander Clark and those Quakers. I listened to your podcast with an interview with a Quaker minister, and he described how there's a variety of Quakers. Mm-hmm. The church outside of the AME, the church I would say he was closest to was the Congregationalists, which these days would be known as United Church of Christ. The congregational pastor was one of his longest friends, surely friend and and ally. Right across the street from his house was the congregational church. When elder daughter Rebecca got married, it was the congregational minister, Alden Robbins, who conducted the ceremony. Mm. And by the way, mom moves to Muscatine. I hadn't known this until recently. Alexander's father dies don't know exactly when i believe we still see him we see him in the 1850 census for sure in washington pennsylvania i'm trying to remember i think he's not in the 1860 census but from her obituary we learn that alexander's mother moved to muscatine in 1863 oh wow in 1890 he get appointed for the second time u.s minister to liberia frederick douglas had been the recorder of deeds for the District of Columbia, which was a beautiful patronage job. I mean, I mean, a job that could award patronage. Mm. So there were uh, many black public employees in Washington, D.C., because Frederick Douglass saw to it that they could all have work. So we find Alexander Clark asking Frederick Douglass, hey, could I have your job? And there are people lobbying on his behalf. But then he gets this... Uh, he gets this appointment to Liberia, and he likes the looks of that one and accepts immediately. Leave, hey. Leaves in September 1890. Pay him $4,000 $4, a year? Well, and I don't know. Did he ever, did he collect in advance? That's, did they pay as a state? I don't that's, know that's, the details on that. That's an interesting question. But the announced salary was $5,000 to, to um, Douglas for Haiti and $4,000 to Clark for Liberia. And just for reference, we, we've observed that the governor of Iowa was paid $3,000 at that time. So this black man was making more money than the governor of Iowa as a U.S. minister in Liberia. Now, he complained to the State Department that he had a lot of expenses. I bet he, he had did. to host a lot of parties and stuff. I bet he did. In 1891, he died in Monrovia in Liberia. He got sick. Kent Sissel requested the diplomatic traffic from the period of Clark's service, and what we've learned there, and this hasn't been written or spoken much about, but we learned that, and this is top of the head, I'm going to say it was early April 1891 that Clark writes to the State Department and says, I've contracted a fever, 
and I really need to come home to recover. So I request a leave of absence. And the implication was that he'd go back when he got well. At the end of May, he dies, and the, re- the report is that he, he failed particularly over the course of the last two or three days and, and then was gone. His body was buried over there in a Methodist churchyard in Monrovia. There was a bit of a campaign. There were people saying it would be an insult not to bring his body home mm-hmm. and telling the government, you really need to do that. I know that the sons, Alexander Jr. and the two sons-in-law both went to a meeting in Chicago dealing with his estate. There was a significant memorial service held in Chicago, too, where Ferdinand Barnett and other black leaders in Chicago were grieving his loss. There was controversy about who would be appointed in his place. There were multiple conventions where names were put forward for who should succeed Alexander Clark. There's also at least one really cynical news article in the regular press, not in the black press, saying Liberia is the place we send ambassadors to die. Oh, wow. They, just, they get sick over there. Now, this explains why from the time he died to the time he was buried here, in Greenwood Cemetery in Muscatine. There's a huge gap there. Campaign to bring his body back. I don't know if cool weather had anything to do with it or not. But I don't know that there was an elaborate funeral. There was a well-publicized funeral. We have a, a eulogy booklet mm. that was published at the time with uh, extensive remarks on what a great man he had been. Why is Alexander Clark important? The list of his achievements are extraordinary and unique for the time. Mm-hmm. Why we don't know who he is. Mm. I've referred to Jim Crow and things that happened soon in America and who controlled the narrative then. Now we are not on Jim Crow era. Why we still don't know who he is? I ask people all the time, who is Alexander Clark? And people have no clue. People in Muscatine know more of him and have been bringing back that memory, I'm going to say since the late 1950s. The African American Museum of Iowa in Cedar Rapids, its large meeting room is called the Aldine Davis Celebration Hall. Aldine Davis was a black woman from Muscatine who for a long, she was a dietitian and, and taught at the community college, but for a long time, she wrote a regular column in the Muscatine Journal newspaper called Soul Food and Thought. Mm. And as you might imagine, a lot of that's about recipes, but a lot more of it is about history and culture. She was active in her in the AME Sunday School and in researching, both through the church and through her association. She was active in women's groups. Aldine Davis was popular in this community and told the stories of Alexander Clark, Susan Clark. She got the mayor of Muscatine to proclaim Alexander Clark Day in 1958. And on that occasion, they held an event that was well-attended, according to reports, and the guest speaker or the visiting celebrity was Adeline Clark, who was the widow of Alexander Clark Jr. Mm. He died in 1939, buried in Oskaloosa, but his widow came to Muscatine in 1958. She didn't live much longer than that. And I mentioned that we have a booklet with the eulogy from Alexander Sr.'s funeral. That was a gift presented by his daughter-in-law, to the AME Sunday School in the 1950s. Mm. Starts to bring it halfway to the present. That's when people started writing about Alexander Clark, trying to rediscover him. By the 1970s, there was a very good article written in the Iowan Magazine. Uh, There were some, the Annals of Iowa talked about him. But the Iowan Magazine uh, 
presented him as somebody lost in history who needed to be recovered. That was, I think, 1974, 75. Um, That's about the time his house was going to be demolished. They were getting ready to move it. The movement started in earnest to rediscover him, to publicize his story. And the moving of the house became an American bicentennial project that um, was able to raise some money and and bring Kent Cecil back to town. <laughs> now, talk where, about- he, where he where he said, "Oh yeah, I'll, I would do that for a couple of years. I might yeah. stay for five years." And then forty years later, he's still here. Uh huh. <laughs> we know that he had a relationship with Frederick Douglass. Do we have the correspondence letters? There's or- some. There's some published correspondence, and there's. Maybe more than one, but for sure there's one handwritten letter on Alexander Clark's letterhead, which has a Muscatine address, Alexander Clark real estate oh. bro- broker or something like that. Yeah. A hand, I, I think this is the one that says, uh, congratulations on your appointment. Could I have your old job? I would love to read that. I would love to read we, it. We'll get you that. But there has been a, a published exchange between them from that period. Douglas refers to him as old friend and speaks of our relationship going back over 40 years which from 1890 would take it to 1850. Mm. Uh, we do know that Douglas's North Star newspaper in 1850 lists agents in different states, and Iowa is listed with only one name, Alexander Clark. Oh, wow. We do know that. Wow. We do know that Frederick Douglas came through on a speaking tour. Oh, in, um, in, in, in Muscatine? Yep. Oh, well, really? In Iowa. Okay. You can, know that. you can find an article in the Annals of Iowa telling about it. You can find some newspaper accounts from the time. And he spoke in Tipton and Muscatine, at least. Tipton, Tipton is the Cedar County seat, just north of here. I, I'm not going to attest to the date. I, I would need to check that. But it was during the period pretty close to the lawsuit. Okay. And I think it may, as I look at various factors, it would have been, you know, motiv- motivations and, and uh context, things that were happening. In Muscatine, you guys celebrate Alexander Clark Day, which is what, February 25th? February 25th. It happened off and on over the years. In recent years, it's been almost every year that we would write a proclamation and have a public program and get the mayor to proclaim it. Uh, But then uh, Councilman Oz Malcolm, the first African-American who's ever served on the Muscatine City Council. Shout out to Oz. Shout out to Oz, absolutely. Mr. Oz, one evening, just presented this language in front of the council. We're going to do this in perpetuity. Then you guys start celebrating every February 25th? Every, every February 25. How fortuitous that it happens to fall in Black History Month. I know. What do you guys usually do on uh, Alexander Clark Day? Uh, at, at minimum, we have some kind of a public event with a speaker, maybe a meal that goes with that, or by invitation to people who are especially interested some years, there's, there's been encouragement to schools. I, I, I don't want to ever oversell this because it's really a few people doing something year after year after year. But we've been, been pretty successful over the years in uh, educating Muscatine school kids. I hope, when you ask people about Alexander Clark and Susan Clark, I hope that recent graduates of our public schools knows remember they at least heard about this one day. Yeah. Is, is it possible to duplicate that to other cities in Iowa, that celebration? Just to put his name out there? Oh, it would be a lovely idea. Okay. You mentioned something about American Dream and Alexander Clark that he believed in. I want you to picture this for a second. We bring Alexander Clark back to life, and the year is 2009. 
Hmm. And we bring him in the Congress, we blindfold him, and we sit him down. Obama is addressing the nation. And then when it's all done, we take the blindfold off, and he watches, and he sees the black president was addressing the United States. What do you think Alexander Clark's reaction will be? I think he'd have been pleased. I think Alexander Clark would have said, what year is this? 1920? <laughs> well, it's taken a while, but here we are. <laughs> I was, what, 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 what did you say? The 21st century? <laughs> I mean, he'd probably dream it will happen he sometimes in the future. his children would see it. We haven't got to Africa that much yet. He was fascinated by this colonization topic, and as far as I can tell... He always opposed colonization, and yet, by the 1880s, when issues in his newspaper include things like, you know, nationwide there was a discussion about what should we do about the Negro problem. That's Mm -hmm. what it was called. People held policy conferences on the Negro problem. Alexander Clark is, oh, one of his predecessors as ambassador to Liberia, I believe it's two ambassadors ahead of him, is a black man from Kansas City who has joined up with the Democrats. Mm. who gets appointed by the the Grover Cleveland administration to be the ambassador to Liberia. And he spends a few months over there, and he comes home. And he goes on a speaking circuit and says, this colonization business, this Liberia colony of ours, this is all bogus. These people raising money for colonization and, you know, help out, send missionaries and help out our people over there, this is a big scam. Yeah. And he goes to the headquarters of the Colonization Society in New York and says, do you know what you people are supporting? It's not a good life over there. And, they, and these people aren't integrating in, and, and you should see how they treat the native people. It's horrible. You don't want to have anything to do with this thing. This stuff's in the media. Alexander's an active media leader, mm-hmm. and he understands what these debates are. And he gives an interview to one of the papers. It's called The, the uh, Inter-Ocean, published in Chicago. As he's leaving, they, they get an interview with him as he's leaving for Liberia, asking him about his objectives. And he doesn't say it in so many words, but what I read between the lines is, I'm trying to sort out the future of black people in America. This American dream, I still believe in it. I'm going to go represent this country on another continent. But I'm concerned about a lot of things happening at home here. And mm. did he think there was something to it? Did he think Jim Crow was going to get so bad that maybe black people should think about? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Why do you like the story for Alexander Clark so much? Well, let's go back to where you started. That It's always been fun to me that I share a surname with the man. I'm a 70-year-old white guy in, who's lived most of my life in Iowa, traveled the world somewhat, discovered happily that we all on this planet have a lot more in common um, with each other than we than what we, separates yeah. us. So... What happens to us as little kids, I'm convinced, has a huge effect on us. Oh, yeah. What I we agree. tell our kids, what we expose our kids to. One I of the agree. things my parents exposed me to was a young Martin Luther King Jr. came to speak at Iowa State University. It was called Iowa State College in those days, 1959. Mm. Spoke in Ames. I was eight years old, and I got to see young Martin Luther King speak. And I'm proud to discover that some good things happen in my state related to the history of race in America. Yeah, and that's something. How long would you say you've been putting to do research on this thing? 20 years? I would say I met Kent Sissel in, and started learning about Alexander Clark in 1983. And in 
2001, I worked as a newspaper reporter for the year and covered the creation of the Historic Preservation Commission of Muscatine, for which, for which Kent was considered kind of their main expert. And I started getting really deep into the story, covering yeah. it as a, as a journalist. And then our mayor appointed me to the Historic Preservation Commission, and suddenly I was one of those who had a duty to learn all I could, tell the stories, engage in the public acts that would help. Mm-hmm. The longer you have done this research and digging into Alexander Clark, does it become personal to you? Oh, my, yes. So all this time since the 80s, you guys still tell me you cannot write a book yet? You're still doing the research? The old white guys? That's, that's <laughs> put, one of our problems right there. We Put say, my face on it. Ghostwritten by... <laughs> <laughs> Why the book cannot be written on, on Alexander Clark? There, ne- there needs to be a book, more than one book, to do, Absolutely. to do him justice. Much, much writing has been done. That's part of the answer I gave you. We have also been told, the State Historical Society, about a decade ago, We had the idea that the Alexander Clark House should become a National Historic Landmark. Mm -hmm. It was already on the National Register of Historic Places. We didn't know a lot of the fine points and the politics of how this stuff works. As I said, bicentennial year, 1976, Alexander Clark, National Register. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. So we told the State Historical Society, we'd like to do whatever it takes to make this a National Historic Landmark. And they liked the idea well enough that they gave us a grant to pursue the idea because they didn't understand what all was involved either. Yeah. And part of what we ran into was from the National Park Service, which is responsible for these decisions, was that the federal government said, oh, Alexander Clark? Yeah, but see, in the 1970s when this was done, it may have been a little vague. But what's clear now is that that register listing was done on the basis of state significance. Mm. And so the first step would be to establish that this man and his story are of any national significance. Oh, you can imagine what we said about the second most important black man of America in the 19th century. Well, that doesn't cut it. It turns out with the Park Service, it's almost like a legal adversary process that you need a, a defender, you need an advocate in the court. And... State Historical Society, Lowell Soike mm-hmm. was a historian who was most expert in Underground Railroad. Uh, he wrote a pair of books about the Underground Railroad research that, that was done. We, we were part of that. Lowell Soike's advice was for us to see if we could get acquainted with a constitutional law historian, a professor who was in Albany, New York at the time, a man named Paul Finkelman. Look him up. Okay. Or, yeah, I know. Or go, to, or, go to C, or go to C-SPAN and find out how many times Paul Finkelman has been on these long-form interviews yeah. talking about his latest book. Yeah, I can't tell me about him. So, Paul Finkelman, he's the guy, because what you need is a big-name advocate uh. in this federal process. We found Professor Finkelman. He was happy to talk. He'd had some experience teaching in Iowa, in Iowa City. Uh, he said he had a fondness for Iowa. And it happened that he was going to be a keynote speaker back to John Brown. October 2009 was the 150th anniversary of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. And it just happened that the sesquicentennial was coming up and the reenactors were going to be there. And the Park Service was holding a big deal conference. So I got a train ticket and rode to Harper's Ferry and arrived on the campus where this was being held 
ran up and met Paul Finkelman. I made my way to the front telling people that, well, I'm a <clears throat> I'm guest of uh, Dr. Finkelman. Dr. Finkelman treated me like a long-lost friend. We went to dinner together, and we've had a relationship ever since where he has helped us with a number of projects. For a while, we had him working on this state grant, and then we ran into uh, so many hurdles from the federal government that they're saying, well, you guys need to establish national significance. And then, you know, there's this National Network to Freedom Underground Railroad program. Mm -hmm. There are four sites in Iowa that are listed in that program, and the Alexander House, Alexander Clark House, really needs to be in there, too. So why don't you go online? Here's 54 pages of instructions about how to become one of those, and we work through that process. Uh, You know, the handful of old white guys who were working on this got tired. Mm -hmm. And we said, come on, there's got to be a way to cut through some of this. Well, Paul Finkelman says, yeah, there's a way to cut through it. Nobody knows who Alexander Clark is. You really need somebody to write the definitive biography of Alexander Clark. Long story short, that somebody needs to write a really important book. Okay. Alexander Clark Foundation. Talk about that a little bit. What that is and... Alexander How Clark Foundation exists mainly on paper for the last eight years or so. Kent Sissel, who has lived there all these years, is up in years. He's in his mid-70s and really shouldn't be going up and down those stairs anymore. This is in my estimation. Yeah, so the foundation is about the house. The foundation is, is first of all about the house, but its purpose statement is written in such a way that it's about preserving and furthering the legacy of Alexander Alexander Clark. Clark. But the first mission, clearly, is to figure out what happens next with the house. If there's not enough interest locally, well, I don't think there will be interest in a wider arena, statewide, nationwide, whatever, if the local people don't really own this and and say, we need help. Mm -hmm. But we're committing our resources first. And I feel like we're kind of halfway there. So do you guys have a website? What's, what's the deal there? We, we do own the domain name alexanderclark.org, and we developed it a bit some time ago. But recently, the main place where you can follow our activities and the information we're always turning up is on Facebook. There is a okay. page for Alexander Clark. It's called Honorable Alexander Clark. When you go to that page, at the top of the page, you will find a link to the Community Foundation of Greater Muscatine where we have a fund and you can make a tax-deductible contribution. Uh, you can do it by credit card or whatever is easiest. And uh, they are the ones who are provide all of our fiduciary umbrella. Okay. If you could go back in time and have a lunch with Alexander Clark in Muscatine, where would you take him and what would you ask him? Well, I'd take him to the best restaurant. Probably depend on what his expectations of me were, but my sense is that he met everybody well. And even if he had a low opinion of me, he would have been respectful and gracious, and I probably wouldn't have known it. Mm. If I could ask him anything? Anything. Wow. I hope that it would have been along the lines of, what can we do to live together coming out of this? How can we even the score? Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody was thinking of anything like reparations in those days probably not but it would have been a little more like can't we all just get along and if there has to be some basis of equality for all getting along then how do we get there yeah well i want to say thank you and everybody in the muscatine man for keeping his name alive anything i left out anything you want to teach our children well 
Thank you. Amen to that. Amen to that. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the hospitality. Man, that was Don Clark, Muscatine, Iowa. Thank you for listening to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Until next time, be safe. <laughs>